I, uh, uh, I want to oh, um, I want to thank Steve and Melissa Reynolds for putting together our table at the uh, Reisterstown Festival again. Um, and uh, if if you would like to go there and not get completely drenched, you want to talk to Ann Jones about the timing because she managed to leave just in time yesterday. Uh, I did not, but uh, it, it's, it is a lot of fun, and uh, you know you get to make all the kids happy by giving them candy. Although somebody suggested that we give out uh, toothbrushes with the candy instead of pens. Um, also, we neglected to mention the bulletins. This is the, uh, our membership card. We have copies of these on the information table, and there also were electronic versions attached uh, to the Inu Hope. We'll send that out again this week. But uh, next week, uh, we will be uh, doing our annual membership induction, where those of us who are current members will commit again for another year. And uh, those of you who are new members and would like to join will get a chance to do that. Uh, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask me about that. Uh, and then, uh, as a reminder, after the service next week, uh, we will have a brief family meeting to vote on the budget, and then we will also uh, have the food, faith, and no, food, film, and fellowship. Did I get that right? What? Food, fun. Why don't you just say what it is? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to watch a movie and eat lunch. <coughs> That's next week. Um, so, on the night before Valentine's Day in 1995, I believe that God shared a lawyer joke with me. Allow me to explain. See, I, I did not know I would be doing this with my life. I'm very grateful that I'm doing this with my life, but I thought that I was going to be working in politics. And so, uh, I graduated from college, and I learned very quickly uh, that it was not a very good idea for me to be in politics. For one thing, that world kind of brought out the worst in me. Um, for another thing, I really wasn't very good at it. So after getting fired from my first job and being, I think, the only Republican not to land a job in Washington after the 94 elections, uh, I found myself uh, in, uh, in a temp office, uh, being glad to get jobs, uh, gluing uh, checks into little binders for $6 an hour. Uh, I did have something of a backup plan, though, thanks to my parents, who, although they knew that I was dead set on being in politics, they thought it would be wise for me to have some other options. So uh, they had paid for a Princeton review class for me to take the LSAT, which is the test, the law school admissions test, like the SAT for law school. Uh, so I had done that uh, uh, over my own objections as a senior in college, and uh, there I was in February on Valentine's Day, spending a romantic morning at UMBC, sitting in a classroom taking a test that would get me into law school. Now, the funny thing about it was, well, two things. Number one, I, you know, I kind of had a smirk as I was doing this, partly because I was feeling kind of cocky. I, had, uh, the consulting work that I had been doing uh, had, had dried up, and so I had spent most of January uh, at the local Denny's, smoking cigarettes and drinking bottomless coffee and doing practice tests, and I had, uh, I had uh, I'd gotten pretty good at this. But, but the other reason I kind of had a smirk on my face was that I was pretty confident that I wasn't going to be a lawyer, that somehow the stakes of this test that I was taking, the people around me were really stressing about, were just not going to be that high for me because ultimately it was not going to cash out 
with me going to law school. Now, as it turns out, that, uh, that possibility of law school did rear its ugly head a couple years later. By then, uh, those temp jobs had landed me a job as a secretary at Black & Decker. I was working in a cube farm. I was the lowest ranked person in a cube farm. You've got the people in the cube farm that have a door they can close. You've got the people in the cube farm that have the high walls but no door. And then you have the people in the cube farm with no doors and no walls, just a desk that anybody can approach at any time. And that's where I was. And the company was going to send me to law school. And I was, I'd even found a, a professor from college who was going to write me a recommendation, which was quite an accomplishment given my academic performance in college. In fact, I had to remind her that I had written her a letter for tenure that she got, so <laughs> she coughed up the letter. But I was, I, I still hadn't sent my applications in, and, and one night Mary and I had, had just gotten married, uh, and one night at dinner she just said, so wh what, what's going on? You're dragging your feet. Usually when, when you've got something, uh, got your mind set on something, you're at it like a dog on a bone. What, what is this? And I said, you know, I'm just, I'm looking down the barrel of four years, going to work during the day, going to school at night, seeing you maybe on Saturday nights. And uh, honestly, I need a, a better reason to do this than just because I could make good money at it and be good at it. And she said, well, if you could have anybody's job in the world, whose would it be? And immediately, I mentioned the name of one of the pastors at our church. She said, so why don't you go talk to him? And I thought that was the craziest idea I had ever heard. Never in my life had I imagined that I would be a pastor. But to make a long story short, I did talk to him. I went through a period of discernment and then found myself working in ministry. And as it turns out, no, I didn't end up going to law school. As I expected, because, as I mentioned, that night before Valentine's Day, I think God shared a lawyer joke with me. You see, in my quiet time that night, before bed, I was reading in my Bible, and I came across this passage in chapter 11 of Luke, where Jesus says, Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs because of this. God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they'll kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, lawyers! Woe to you lawyers. I read that the night before I took the LSAT. I'm like, yeah. All right. See, this series that we're, we've done this summer, I do not think that verse means what you think it means, has, has been all about good Bible reading. It's been all about looking at passages that are often abused, passages that are often taken out of context and pressed into the service of some political agenda or some theological agenda. What we've been trying to do is to look at these passages as, as we ought to, to, to interpret them rightly, 
that is to interpret them in context. So you'll remember the passage in Genesis when Joe Steinitz came and preached about that, where you have that, that, uh, that line, the Lord watch between me and thee whilst we are apart, one from another, which all sounds very nice until you realize that it's for one in the mouth of Laban, who is really corrupt and untrustworthy. And Laban is saying that to Jacob, who has also proven himself corrupt and untrustworthy. Basically, these are two guys who do not trust each other as far as they could throw them and their flocks. And they're saying, even though I can't keep an eye on you, I know God can. And God is. You remember the passage in Ezekiel, where God tells Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman. Which is what God made Ezekiel. If your name is not Ezekiel, if you are not a Jerusalemite prophet, recently out of, job, out of your job as a priest, exiled to Babylon, you may not have that particular vocation. So even though he told Ezekiel, if you don't tell somebody that they're in the wrong, and if they die, their blood's going to be on your hand, on your head, he may well not have said that to you. In fact, chances are he hasn't. I'll give you a little hint. If your name's Ezekiel and if he tells you that you're supposed to bake your bread lying on the ground, I won't get into the details of that, but you remember that fondly from our Ezekiel series. Remember the, the, the granddaddy of them all, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This lovely passage is written, again, to a bunch of exiles from Jerusalem who are in Babylon, who are going to be there for a while, and God says, I am going to restore you to the land, but I'm not going to do it just yet, so you need to settle down there. You need to pray for the peace and the prosperity of the place where I put you. I want you to put some roots down and, you know, build some houses and have some kids and work at it, because I'm going to bring you back to the land, but not yet. So I have these plans, and I'm going to deploy them, but not just yet, so hang in there. But what, he does not, what God does not do is allow us to take whatever promises we would like out of Scripture and just grab them and apply them to ourselves. There are things in Scripture, in fact, most of the things in Scripture are written by somebody to somebody else, and you need to understand who's writing to whom and when and how and why and what's going on. There are principles that we can take from these passages and apply in our current situation, but if you're going to go and take these statements that sound nice and these promises that sound nice and apply them just to yourself, it's like you're going down the street and going to your neighbor's mailboxes and just taking the bank statements and leaving the credit card bills behind. It doesn't work like that. And then last week, when the bishop was here, he talked about uh, the passage in, uh, in, in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, anyone who doesn't hate his mother and his brother and his father is not worthy of me. He pointed out that Jesus uses this literary device called hyperbole. In fact, all of Scripture is full of these literary devices that we use. And when we read anything else, we seem to understand when somebody is exaggerating or using a metaphor. But sometimes when we read Scripture, it's like we suddenly forget how to read like intelligent people. And we say, hmm. And in places like that, I, th I think we, we, we know if we're at all aware that we're not supposed to take some of those things literally. Because remember, what does he also say? If your eye offends thee, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. I've been to churches where there are some very, very literal fundamentalist people who have both eyes, and I know they're not applying that directly. 
No, we need to recognize the literary context of the word that God, God has given us. We need to apply the reasonable rules of interpretation that enable us to make sense of a text, to understand its meaning, and then to apply that in our own setting. But, but, sometimes God breaks the rules. Sometimes God breaks the rules. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He says, and, and here he's speaking actually to a, uh, writing to a group of, of uh, seminarians at an underground seminary in Germany. These are people who had uh, not bowed the knee to the Nazis and they were learning how to be pastors in the confessing church. He says, whereas in our daily worship together we le- read long continuous texts in our personal meditation on scripture, we stick to a brief selected text that will possibly remain unchanged for an entire week. If we're in our communal reading of the scriptures led more into the whole length and breadth of the Holy Scriptures, here we are guided into the unfathomable depths of a particular sentence and word. In our meditation, we read the text given to us on the strength of the promise that has something quite personal to say to us for this day and for our standing as Christians. It's not only God's word for the community of faith, but also God's word for me personally. We expose ourselves to the particular sentence and word until we personally are affected by it. We're reading the word of God as God's word for us. And for that very reason, we will begin our meditation with a prayer that God may send the Holy Spirit to us through the word and reveal God's word to us and enlighten our minds. You may have heard of the phrase Lectio Divina. This is a classic spiritual practice of reading scripture where you allow it to wash over you and you allow it to wash over you again and you allow it to wash over you again. And all the while, what you're doing is you're listening, paying attention to what phrases or words especially grab you. And then you say, why? What is it about that? that is especially meaningful for me? What is it about that that has something to say to the situation I'm in right now? Sometimes the Spirit is going to shed light on a situation that you're going through by means of a passage that's about something else entirely. Luke 11 is not about law school. The lawyers that Jesus was condemning there were the people who used Torah as a means of extracting advantage over other people. He did not condemn the entire legal profession, much as some would like that to be the case. So sometimes the Spirit is going to use words of Scripture in that way. But maybe not as often as you think. That's why discernment is needed. Paul says in the first letter to the Thessalonians, right at the end, he says, look, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test everything. Test everything. Hold on to what's good and avoid every kind of evil. We need to be discerning. 
as we encounter these kinds of situations where God may be speaking to us through Scripture in a way that would not initially seem to make sense. So a, a few, if I may, a few rules for being aware of when God breaks the rules. One, don't go looking for it. This is something that comes as the Spirit wills. It's not something that we can extract by our efforts at opening our minds and souls as far as we possibly can. This isn't something that happens if we just spend enough time reading a particular word or a particular passage that finally something's going to crack open and then God is going to drop something in our heads. It's something that he gives as he pleases, and I don't think very often. And if we do think we have heard something from God like this, we, we need to pray for confirmation. We need to ask that God would show us that that is, in fact, what he's trying to say, and that he would show us if it's not, that he, he would allow us to see that maybe we've misunderstood. He'd give us the grace to let it go, if that's true. We certainly should be checking with people we trust. If we say, yes, I read this passage, and I believe God's calling me to go knock over a gas station to pay for the church's rent next month, probably if you're going to talk to somebody, they're going to say, don't. I hope. That's part of the benefit of being in community with each other when we have relationships with people that we trust, who, people who know us, people that we can go to and say, hey, this is kind of crazy, but I felt like as we were praying or I felt like as we were singing in church, sometimes this happens through him. Sometimes it happens through something that's not even in Scripture. I remember this time I, was, I had the radio station on. I was going to the store, and I heard this Rage Against the Machine lyric that gave me this real insight into the Gospels. I was taking a class on the Gospels at the time. And I went back, and I looked up the lyric, and it was not what I had heard. And so, fine, I let that go. But I still had that insight. It still kind of was, was like a, a vine that jumped me across the chasm and then broke. Sometimes that happens. You need to be extra suspicious if it's something you want to hear. You need to be extra suspicious if it's something you want to hear. It's my experience that God does give me words of comfort, that God does, in this case, share a lawyer joke with me. But there are also times when you can read and you, you can feel like God's saying something that he's not really saying. It's just kind of what you wish he would say, right? It's like the person who says, all right, if God wants me to stop for a donut on the way to work, there's going to be an empty parking space right in front of the bakery. And sure enough, the sixth time around the block, there it was. <laughs> And finally, I think we need to beware of taking this sort of thing too far. As I, read, uh, as I read the rabbis, as I read medieval allegory, I think I see this kind of thing where somebody will take something and he'll say, so this means, and I'm like, no, I don't think that means that. And Bernard of Clairvaux, I forget how many dozen sermons he got out of the first verse of the Song of Songs. He got into high Christology, the hypostatic union between Christ's human and divine natures. I don't think that's what the first verse of the Song of Songs is about. It's great theology, and if that is the vine that leaped him across the chasm, thank God for that. But it's one thing to say, this kind of led me to that, and it's another to say, this is what that means. So usually, when this happens, it's just going to be for you. Maybe, maybe like if you're a house church leader, it might be for your house church, or maybe it would be for your family, but 
but it's probably just going to be for you. It's probably going to be limited in its application. There's a new book that I read. I was really looking forward to reading this book too, in preparation for this sermon. New book by Marilyn Chandler McIntyre. She's a writing professor out in California. What's in a phrase? Pausing where scripture gives you pause. And so after she gives sort of a couple pages on this idea of reading in this way where you allow God to sort of speak you through certain passages, she, I mean, basically it's like we're reading through her journal. And it's doing absolutely nothing for me. I, you know, <laughs> we'll put it in the library if it, if it helps you, great. But basically, she, the, these situations, the, the, these, these words, these passages seem to really be speaking to her, but not to me. To close the story out, by the way, as you know, I did not become a lawyer, although I did do well enough on the LSAT that uh, I was able to teach a class for Kaplan while going through seminary to make a little extra money. I also got to coach a few friends on the LSAT, one of whom is sitting here and has actually beat my score, which I'm not bitter about at all. It's okay. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> Father, we want to be people of your word. We want to be faithful readers of your word. We want to read well. We want to read properly. We want to read in a way that uses all of the intelligence that you've equipped us with. But at the same time, we also want to read with an openness to what your spirit is saying. And we pray that we would be people who are open to hearing things that we're not expecting, things that we may not want to hear but that we would be open to your voice and obedient to it when we hear it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. For so it might not be the most familiar to you, but I hope you sing along.